Welcome back, everyone, to Single Minded, where we are flipping the script on being single. I am your host, Hannah First. And I'm your co-host, Linda. We're in Melbourne. And actually, Mum, did you see on my Instagram stories that there were 69 cases of COVID and everyone was sending me screenshots of the um, newspaper article because I see 69 (laughs) everywhere. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. So Melbourne is in its final days of its fourth lockdown. So we have Mm -hmm. been really bored and boring. I didn't even shower today until 6pm. I just sat in my PJs at my desk in a beanie with a fan heater. I didn't bother with... Oh, my God, heaven. Terrible. Didn't bother with moisturiser. I didn't brush my hair. I didn't clean my teeth. But what I did do was partake in some very satisfying online shopping. Mm -hmm. Dad's finally cracked it. Apparently, I thrashed about so much the other night, including some very loud snoring, that the time has finally arrived for... Yes. (laughs) King singles. Single, king singles. So I've talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. So I did so much research and finally picked the beds because there's some good um, end of financial year sales on, purchased them. Then, of course, needed new bedding. So I've been all over the shop buying bedding, although Duna covers in King Singles, pretty hard to find. Then whilst mm. I was researching beds and bedding. Hey, there's a business idea. <laughs> I know. I was thinking that going to King Single bedding for seniors. So then I got mm. served an ad whilst all this was going on for something called Lids by Design. Have you ever heard of that? No. Lids by design. It's a strip that you place in the fold of your eye to reduce excess skin. So I purchased them as well. And then I thought I'd get dad a new big wok so he doesn't make so much (laughs) mess with his stir fries. So that's my day. What about you? So you asked for a good (laughs) news story and I've actually got one for you, Linda. And it's Finally. I know. So a girl messaged me after the episode we did with Joe and she said, the thought of dating makes me want to vomit, but listening to you and Joe on the last episode made me somewhat excited. So I got an update from her because she was going, I think, on her first ever dating update. So here's her update. I went on my first ever Tinder date and didn't vomit. It was a day date with no alcohol, first coffee in the park, and then went on a drive through the National Park. She said, prop's not safe, but I'm learning. (laughs) I don't think that's... (laughs) I would not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we have massive chemistry. No kiss on first date, but we met up Mm. the day after and made out, which was amazing. Flash forward two weeks and I was at his all weekend and I'm staying this coming weekend. I'm in shock that this was Ah. my first swipe ever on Tinder of all places and it's going so well. Brilliant. Good story. That's a good story. I guess I've been pretty nego about the the trash energy on dating apps and it's made me... take a bit of a different approach, I think. And what I did was I've moved my dating updates to single-minded pod. So if you ask to join my close friends on my Instagram, then all the updates will now be on single-minded pod publicly. And I've made some changes. So I thought we could, I could share a couple of those okay. here if you missed the Instagram story. So I'm max 20 to 30 minutes a day on the apps turning off the notifications. Can I ask a question? Yeah. In the bad days, 
if it's 20 to 30 now, what was it? No, I just think it was more about checking it every time I got a message. I see. So now you don't do that. No. So notifications would be turned on. And so I'd get a notification and then I'd check it. Like Instagram, I don't have notifications on. So now it's like check it in the morning, check it at night. Not in lockdown because who can be effed with Mm. lockdown, dating and lockdown. But anyway, so if someone doesn't respond for two to three days, I just unmatch them. I just don't want to waste time with people that are there to waste time. The time wasters can waste time together but I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. I'm only interested in going on actual dates. I start with a text message because I'm on Bumble at the moment and then I upgrade to a voice memo after a day or so. So you're not scaring them straight off the bat with (laughs) send me a voice memo. the voice memos weren't scaring people. I don't know why I've started doing that. The voice memos weren't scaring anyone, but I feel like this just is making me feel less stressed about having to send a voice memo first up. Because I thought most people would be, oh, I don't really want to send a voice memo. Mm. So you can just like ease into a text message and then upgrade to a voice memo. Good, good idea. And if they're not asking me out, this is just so common. No one asks anyone out and you just end up chatting and chatting and chatting. Like, So what's, no. what is the point of it? I don't know. Okay. So I actually suggest a coffee or a walk if they haven't already and if they don't respond or are giving me fakey vibes, unmatch. So, yes, I am being cutthroat, but you've got to be. Yes. I'm very busy and working very hard, not. <laughs> Final tip was I'm trying to get less hung up on instant chemistry. Lindsay, Yay! This is one of your tips. Um, I've been saying yes to second dates when I'm on the fence. And actually, interestingly, I got a lot of messages from people after I shared that saying that they gave their current partner a go and that it took, you know, two, three, four dates to get that spark and now they're so in love and blah, blah, blah. Lots of good news stories. Do you remember your your sister who is married and going to have a baby? Do you remember that their first date was appalling and both of them yeah, probably yeah, thought yeah. never again. And now look where we are. Yeah, 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 totally. So I am trying to give that a go. And look, I had so many people messaging me on that frame in particular. So I think there's an episode in that about, you know. Let's do an episode. What is chemistry? <laughs> what is chemistry and does chemistry grow over time? So mm. we'll do an episode of that. So stay tuned. But I've got one final thing that I want to talk about. So I had a girl message me and I really wanted to share it because I really think it will be relatable to so many people because we do talk a lot about, you know, loving being single, but there are parts of being single that are hard. So Mm. she said, hi, Hannah, I absolutely love your podcast. I was wondering if you felt a sense of jealousy when your friends have been in relationships and you've been single. It's something I've really struggled with because I'm currently happy with my life and happy being single. However, sometimes I feel this sense of jealousy and sadness when I see my friends find or get into relationships really easily. Do you have any advice for someone that feels this way? It's a really ugly feeling Mm. and I'm almost embarrassed that I feel this way. Hopefully someone else can resonate resonate. Anyway, I sent her a voice memo back straight away. Oh my God, a hundred percent. I have felt this so many times. You are so not alone. Um, really good topic suggestion. I'm definitely going to bring this up with Linda in our next episode. So thanks for the suggestion. And no, you are not alone. I feel jealous about fictional couples in movies. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, Linda, I just wanted to say that my latest jealousy is I'm watching Blacklist. I get jealous of like criminals who are like, you know, running from the law. I got jealous of them. What, the excitement? No, just because they're like in love and having hot sex. Oh, they're in love. Okay. Yeah. So I totally relate. I think it's a really normal part of being single. It is. And being old and married. You get jealous as well. Do you get jealous of people that are like (laughs) alone? Probably not. I, no, no, (laughs) no. Do you ever get jealous of me? Some mothers are jealous of their daughters. I will say that. That's not me. No, I get jealous of, um, it's not jealous, it's just wistful about when you see young people Mm. and the first throes of romance before they're, yeah, Mm. so, and you think back and you're never going to have that again and you're getting older. So that's not jealousy, but I suppose... Yeah, wistful. I get yeah. So I think that's that's true. I think everyone feels it. I think the grass is always greener. And I definitely feel it. So for anyone out there that really resonated with that, I think it's normal for single people, for married people, for everyone. Maybe not the people in the first, you know, three weeks of butterflies, but no. everything ends, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> I was actually trying to think the other Including day. life. When does it end? Yes, I can't remember when it does, but yes, it does. And then you, you move on into a happy, relaxed relationship with hopefully not too much fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's been quite a bit of that bickering. this week. Yes, Ooh, yes. A lot of bickering. Let's check back next week and see if the King singles well, help. I don't know if they will have arrived by then, but, but we will. when they arrive and set up, I will be reporting back on my first night's sleep in a King single. All right. Well, let's get into today's episode. I'm chatting to Georgia Grace, otherwise known as G-Spot on Instagram. She is a sex coach and we are talking all about your unique sexual fingerprint. Georgia Grace is a certified Australian sex coach, writer and speaker and the in-house sex coach for the sexual wellness brand Normal. Welcome to the podcast, Georgia. Thank you. It's great to be here. Your Instagram handle, it's it's G Spot, isn't it? Is that right? Yep. I love that. As soon as I saw that, I was like, yep, love it. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? For sure. So my name is Georgia, although people are calling me G Spot at the moment, um, which I think is a really funny thing to have your whole <laughs> name changed. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a certified Australian sex coach. So essentially what that means is I work with individuals, couples and groups through a range of specific sexual concerns like premature ejaculation, vaginismus, erectile dysfunction, mismatched libidos. But then I also work with a range of curiosities and inquiries whereby people are wanting to have better sex and they're sort of coming to me to support them with that inquiry. I also work in sort of larger scale workshop and and speaking engagement areas. Uh, I really love working with groups of people because it means that, yes, I get to facilitate, but we get to learn from a range of different human beings, which is always so useful. And then the sort of final way that I work is behind the scenes with some incredible brands like Normal, doing content development, uh, working in advisory roles so that, yeah, we can really work together to give people the most useful information, the best product for them, and ultimately change the way that we speak about sex. 
And um, you were involved in Normal's big Australian sex survey. I'd love to hear what some of the findings of this survey were. So the basic finding was that sex ed is failing people. Mm. And, you know, I think that this research came out at the most perfect time, given everything that's going on in Australia at the moment with our conversations around consent and needing to reform sex education. So the research found that only one in three, so 34% of females or people with vulvas and 30% of, 37% of males or people with penises learned how to discuss consent with their partner. So that is wild that very few people are learning how to have the most important conversation, which is Mm. the discussion of consent. But then even fewer Gen Zs learned their legal rights when it comes to the obligations around consent. Also, 43% of Gen Z females and 57% of Gen Z males did not receive any education on conception or contraception Mm. at all. And online resources have become a key avenue for self-sexual education, which at the moment we are seeing a lot more information coming out and supporting people in receiving the information that they want to need. But essentially sex education has failed young people. And I think this is really alarming. And I see it all the time in session and in workshops. I ask people, where did you learn about sex? And they will say they didn't or Mm. um, they did one subject at school or they'll learn from their friends or um, one talk that they had from their parents or from porn or trial and error. You know, all of those are really not great resources and Mm. has ultimately led to a lot of people feeling really confused, not, not having great or fulfilling sex, being bored, not knowing how to navigate this whether it's sexual or whether it's more relational. Um, So education is incredibly important. And I think that was the key thing that I've taken away from this research is that there isn't a lot of useful information out there and people are really hungry for it. Mm. Thorough education can do a lot to support people in feeling comfortable in their bodies and feeling comfortable and safe in enjoying other people's bodies too. And it can also be really fun. And that's the thing that why I'm sort of loving working with Normal at the moment, because we're having fun with providing people with the education that they want to need. And it's almost like a collective sigh that everyone's like, oh, It's so interesting and it's so Mm. useful and finally we have answers to these questions that we've had forever. Mm. It was so interesting what you said about sex education and about self-learning. I did a limited edition series for another podcast I do and it was all about sex and interviewing like Sex with Emily and some really amazing guests and I couldn't believe it but I'd been using and I think everyone does had <laughs> been using the word vagina wrong instead of vulva and I had no idea and I'm 32 and I just felt like you just don't ever get taught that like just simple anatomy just the the basics of yeah. what to call your genitals and yeah. you know what you're not the only person at all. And when I do something similar in my workshops, I will show a sort of wall of vulvas and I will ask people, what is this? What are Mm. these? What would you call them? And they will say, oh, they're vaginas. And 
you know, you can call your body whatever you want and whatever rings true to you or feels comfortable for you, that is totally, you know, up to you. But when we look at the feminist analysis for why it matters in that referring to a vulva as a vagina, which the vagina is the muscular canal that connects the vulva to the uterus, it's essentially saying or referring to all of the anatomy as the part of the body that gives heterosexual men most pleasure during penetrative sex. So we're completely ignoring the clitoris or the labia or the pubic mons and all of the external organs. So yeah, there is certainly power in naming genitals anatomically correct and knowing about that, but then also choosing the name that works best for you. So one of the findings from the survey was um, anxiety, body image and sexual skills are big concerns for young Australians. How do these obstacles affect people and their sex lives? I see this finding that anxiety and body image and, and sexual skills or the feeling of lack thereof affecting people in many different ways. So whether that is their capacity or willingness to receive, their sexual communication skills, their capacity to self-regulate from high arousal to down-regulating that arousal. It really does, I think, sexual confidence underpin everything we do, especially when it comes to sex, whether that's the communicating of boundaries, the being able to say thank you when you're here or no. And it does play a big part in my sessions and in the work that I do in workshops. And I do think that there are certain things that get in the way that it can be political, it can be social, it can be cultural. So Often I find that it's an ongoing inquiry whereby people are working with shame and Mm. figuring out how to work through that or sit with it, acknowledge it and choose a, a different approach. So I wasn't surprised by this finding because I work with it a lot and mm. I think it's as a result of the fact that we have a, an upbringing that has essentially left a lot of people feeling shameful and left in the dark and not really knowing how to navigate sex because we don't offer the skills to support young people in doing so. Mm. But how did you feel when you read that? Was that surprising to you? Um, No, not at all. That's (laughs) why I pulled that stat out because I was Mm. like, oh, that I think would resonate with a lot of women, Mm. particularly around... I guess, body image and sexual skills, I think that you have an image from what you see in the media as like a young woman. You get so many bad messages about like sex and Mm. about bodies and what things should look like and I think that really does impact you in the longer term if you don't revisit it as an adult. For sure. I've been doing lots of content on this subject. So I feel like for me, I've spent, you know, so long now looking into it. But if you don't revisit it as an adult, you never know and you're not aware of how your ideas were formed as like a young person. 
Yeah, and that goes for the way that you look and and the constant sort of imagery and messaging around what sexy or sexual is. Mm. And then I also find that it's in the way that you feel your body performs. So if someone isn't coming when or how they want Mm. or if they're aroused but they can't quite get there or if they're feeling too aroused when they don't want to be turned on, there's so much around the yeah, the the imagery that we see around sex that, yes, is around what your body looks like, but it's also how people feel their body performs when it comes mm. to sex. And I think I wasn't even aware. I wasn't until I read a book, I think, and I wasn't even aware of the negative talk that I was doing. Like I wasn't aware that I'd look in the mirror and say things to myself. And when you're not even aware of it, it's very hard to, I guess, change it. But now I know that it happens I can't stop it from happening ever again. And I think that's the thing people like want to get to a point where they're completely happy with their bodies all the time. That for me is never going to happen. And I'm pretty comfortable with the fact that that's not going to happen, mm. but I'm much more aware of it when it's happening, mm. if that makes sense. For sure. It does. And and I think that, you know, that's not just on the individual. That is on, that is so far beyond sort of the work that we can do for ourselves. It really, it pleasure in our bodies is political. And mm. some people have greater access to that because maybe their body fits the, the imagery of what it is to be a sexual person. Mm. But for anyone who doesn't, whether that is color or ability or fat or queerness or, you know, all of these things that are now we are seeing represented even more Mm. for a really long time. We haven't seen them. So true with age as well. Like I think age Mm -hmm. is one that Mm. you think that you get to a certain age and it's all over because you don't see representations. But I, I have noticed now I'm watching a show, The Kaminsky Method, at the moment and it's so cool to see like 80 year olds having sex and yeah, I love seeing that and it makes me like excited like, oh, this can still happen. Mm, yeah. yeah. God, yeah, that's such a good point. We need to see more aged bodies enjoying mm, sex. Exactly. And, yeah. and loving their bodies and experimenting yeah. and exploring. Mm. So I think the main sort of topic I really wanted to cover today because I was super interested when I saw it on the normal website was what is the sexual fingerprint? So your sexual fingerprint essentially looks at the fact that your erotic personality, who you are as a sexual person, your sexuality, is as unique as your fingerprint. So just like our fingerprints are completely different as, you know, everyone else's are, so will our erotic personality be. And I think if we can understand our eroticism as being made up of the many different things that happen in our life, both the pleasurable and erotic and not pleasurable and not erotic. And when we can start to understand that what we're attracted to, what excites us, what disgusts us is informed by our many experiences throughout our life, we can look at how eroticism is 
essentially the part of sex that energizes it. It's the thing that makes it really exciting or intriguing or disgusting. So I love that Normal has this on their website. They have those two surveys that I think take two minutes and you can essentially go in, they ask you a few questions and they will serve you information about your sexual fingerprint, which is really cool because I don't think people really understand when we speak about sexuality and we speak about what turns us on and relationships and and gender and all the things that make us unique. I think we have still quite a linear or quite a binary understanding of what that can be. But when we can open that up and explore and realize, yeah, I identify with that aspect. And then I also identify with this other part of sexuality. We can see humans as, of course, being as unique as their fingerprint. So I'm actually reading at the moment because I did those two quizzes about the arousal style on Normal's website and you referenced Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. Can you explain SES and SIS to the listeners? These were the two quizzes that were on Normal's website. And I really recommend that everyone do these quizzes because it is fascinating. So Mm. essentially, it's a great book, Come As You Are, Emily Nagoski. She also has an incredible workbook that you can go through and learn on your own or with someone else. But essentially, when we're looking at SES, so your sexual excitement system, and SIS, your sexual inhibition system, that is essentially looking at your dual control model. So what that takes into consideration is your central nervous system, your brain and your spine, and it's made up of two systems. So your parasympathetic nervous system, your rest and digest, and your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight. And the dual control model takes into consideration your SES and your SIS. Mm-hmm. I might be throwing a few acronyms out there that may be a little bit confusing, but I'll speak to what they actually are. So your sexual excitement system essentially refers to your accelerator, your sexual response. It scans your environment for things that excite you, that turn you on, that could Mm -hmm. be a smell, it could be a look, it could be a kind of person who you're attracted to. And as it's scanning, it goes, oh, sex, wonderful, exciting, I'm aroused. That could be a touch, some kind of stimulation. So it's looking for all of those things that are essentially accelerating you or turning you on. Then your sexual inhibition system, so your SIS, that's the break. There are apparently two kinds of breaks. So one break scans your environment for the things you see, you hear, or you feel. And this sends sort of a message that says it's inappropriate for me to be aroused right now. So I'm not going to be aroused. But then the other break is one that Emily Nagoski works with quite a lot and refers to the handbrake. So you can Mm. still kind of keep moving, but it's sort of a low-level break and that could be the fear of performance failure Mm -hmm. or it could be the fear of not climaxing, coming too quickly, not getting hard and all of those things. So when we can understand our sexual excitement system and our sexual inhibition system, then we start to work with what we can do to regulate arousal so people can feel more turned on so that they can 
upregulate, go more into the sympathetic nervous system and steer further away from this SIS, their sexual inhibition system. So for anyone who's kind of a, a sex geek out there like me, maybe they'll be nerding out on that. And for others that may have been a bit wordy <laughs> and a bit intense. But No, I think it's really good to do the quiz. When I did it, I was, I was wondering, because mm. at the start of the book, she talks about people that don't just get spontaneously turned on so they're not the initiator it's more what was the term that she used responsive responsive is that part of this yes yeah Yeah. can you explain that a little bit because I found that fascinating and Mm -hmm. it was like a woman might not initiate sex she talks through why that might be the case yes so there are two ways of experiencing desire spontaneous and responsive. When we look at spontaneous, we see that a lot. We see it in movies. Maybe we hear about it from our friends. It's the spontaneous urge for sex that seemingly comes out of nowhere. A lot of people say they experience this in the first initial stages of a new relationship. Some people don't, but that is quite sort of common. It's quite exciting. It is of course, a really sexy, a really healthy, a really wonderful way to experience desire, but it's just one way to experience desire. And there is another, and that's responsive. So that essentially looks at the things that your body needs in order to respond to desire. So that could be an hour-long makeout session. It could be someone giving you a massage. It could be someone saying, I really want to have sex tonight and I'm going to do all of these things and sort of building the arousal that way. So the responding to desire. Of course, just as healthy, just as sexy, and also more common. But because we only see and hear about spontaneous desire, people think that if they're experiencing responsive desire, there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. They've self-diagnosed themselves as having low desire or not wanting or liking sex. And of course, that is certainly true for some people. But for others, they just haven't really understood how desire works. So then when we get a sense of whether you're perhaps more in the responsive or more in the spontaneous category, you can be in both, it can change, it's always context dependent, Mm -hmm. then we can work to creating and figuring out what a fulfilling sex life is for the individual. And there's many ways that we go about that. The first is identifying, the next is putting some strategies in place so that they can have a great relationship with their own body or others. Mm, Fascinating. Mm. For anyone listening, I'll let you know once I finish the book, but I'm loving it so far. It's like a real eye-opener. Awesome. A sexologist previously actually recommended it, and then I saw it on Normal's website and I was like, all right, I got to read this book. <laughs> Two signs. <laughs> exactly. Um, can you tell me a bit about the orgasm gap and what we can do to help close this? You know, are things like self-pleasure, can they help women understand more about what will help them achieve orgasm in the bedroom? 
Yes. So the orgasm gap is essentially the term coined to look at the disparity between people who orgasm. In particular, the focus is on heterosexual penetrative sex. So we have found that there is a significant gap when we're looking at heterosexual sex. That's not the same for queer, lesbian, bisexual people um, and the sex that they engage with, they have way more orgasms. So I guess when we are looking at the common denominator, it is getting a sense of how people are having sex and whether they're having sex in the way that is most orgasmic. So penetrative sex can feel incredibly pleasurable. It can feel really connecting. It can feel orgasmic. People love the feeling of being full and having something inside of them. But if we're looking at the organs, like the clitoris and the way that it sort of wraps around the vaginal canal and the easiest access to stimulate it is externally, mm-hmm. a lot of people with vulvas aren't getting enough of this stimulation. Because we also see four players four before the main act, it's often this thing that lasts for a few seconds or a few minutes and then, you know, you go into penetrative sex. So people with vulvas aren't getting enough outer course or foreplay either. So to curb that, there are many things we can do. The first most important thing we need to do is completely redefine sex. Mm -hmm. Sex is not just a penis going inside a vagina. If we think that sex is that way, it increases the orgasm gap and it leaves out a whole group of people that don't have sex in that way. It also is quite linear and quite boring that it doesn't really allow for that much creativity if we're assuming that you've had sex when you've been penetrated or you've penetrated someone else. So if we can redefine sex and rewrite this sexual script, I think that will be really useful. We also need to change how we understand foreplay. I call it out of course, as do many other um, sexual wellness people in the space. And instead of seeing out of course or oral or massage or fingering or touch as something you do before sex, really making that a very valid and very pleasurable sexual experience for people. Another thing that I find is really fun is the inclusion of tools like toys and lube and not thinking that just because you are adding in something else to the mix that that's not a valid human experience, that these tools are essentially there to make sex great. Their sole function is to bring pleasure. So really allowing for your body to receive and to explore and to experience this pleasure. And as you mentioned, self-pleasure or masturbation, I think is a really powerful tool in learning about your body, rewiring old habits. So if I'm working with someone who hasn't experienced orgasm before by themselves or with another person, we work on a pretty strict, not strict, but pretty content heavy masturbation routine, whereby for a month, I invite them to masturbate every day and to explore a new form of masturbation so that they can 
learn how they like to be touched. They can explore different things. They can bring breath and movement and sound and touch into the experience Mm -hmm. and ultimately start to rewire those neural pathways around how they typically experience pleasure or sensation in their body. Mm. Very interesting. A lot of the time I will also support people in taking the goal out of sex and taking orgasm off the cards because it is wonderful that we're having this moment and this time that, you know, we are demanding equal access to pleasure. But people are also experiencing a great amount of anxiety and stress around needing to come. Now that they're saying, I want to orgasm during sex, it's become this goal-driven thing. And they're still having sex in a in a penetrative way. So maybe the concepts have changed, but the way that people have are having sex hasn't changed. So we work to take the goal out of sex and to come back to pleasure, come back to their bodies, come back to what's happening in the moment, tuning into what they want and need, and then also attuning to what other or others want and need so that they can, you know, experience the fullest amount of pleasure in their body possible. Well, thank you so much, Georgia, for joining me. Where can people find you? You can find me over at Normal. (laughs) I'm hanging out over there. Um, You can also find me on Instagram as gspot.underscore or if you want to check out my website, it's www.georgiagracegraced.com. Okay. So, Linda. So, Linda. So, Linda, what did you think? So, Georgia Grace is called G-Spot on Instagram, and you may or may not know that I have a G-word nickname. What? For what? (laughs) I have a G-word nickname. For who? For you? (laughs) Yes. What is it? Here with the program. So, it was given to me by a group of girlfriends when we were going to Noosa together every year and we were very busy talking about how I only wear G-strings when I wear pants. (laughs) Still do. So, I got the the nickname G-banger and that has stuck and whenever this girl calls me or sees me, that's what she calls me, G-banger. G-banger. That's your, we should um change your Instagram handle, G-banger. No, yes. Anyway, I digress. So in my day, we used the word vagina. Vagina was a yes. catch-all for the whole shebang. And maybe that's because there's a word we were less comfortable saying than vagina, and that was vulva. That is a word I've never used, but I agree. Yep. You can call your body whatever you want, whatever feels comfortable. And you might remember when you guys were young, I used to call it a vooge. Yeah, you were not a good example of using <laughs> Bad the example. Word. Of, yeah, yes. she used to call it the vooge. And I've also used the word punani. And I honestly don't know where I heard that, but I've I've had a look and it was used in India in the Kama Sutra to describe ah. the female genitalia. So maybe that's where it comes from. And there's also a Hawaiian word, puanani, and the literal translation is beautiful flower. Yes. But I'm still going to keep saying vagina. Is that okay? That's fine, Linda. I think I will too. <laughs> and just uh, moving on on the interview, 
So you have had so many dates and I often hear from you there is no chemistry. So what generally excites you when you meet someone? Is it a smell, a look, the way they talk? Oh, that's a good question. I think voices are definitely a thing for me, which is why the voice memos have been working well because I get an idea for what their Mm. voice is like. I think it's, and I know everyone says this, but it's kind of like a kooky confidence, I would say. A kooky confidence? Kooky confidence. Like they're a little bit kooky but confident, like very comfortable in their weirdness. So being kooky confident, not cocky confident. Yeah, yeah. I don't like cockiness and I don't like arrogance or big e- like mm. overly big egos, but someone that's got like a bit of a kook that's like a bit off-center and like but very comfortable in that, like they're not trying to conform to anything else or anyone what what they think they should be. I really like that. So what what gets my attention is definitely a voice. And um, deep voice, obviously. Yeah. So I've had a little (laughs) Google and I've read that the key to achieving a sexy voice is talking at a moderate pace. So by talking, (laughs) no jokes. So I clearly don't have a good voice. I'm getting getting to that. (laughs) By talking at the correct pace, I'm probably too slow, you're able to enunciate properly and put emphasis and stress on certain words. And by contrast, hello, Hannah, speaking at a very fast rate will make your voice sound manic and possibly annoying. (gasps) Oh, I'm so... Oh, really? I hope. Mm. Why Why do I do a podcast then if I talk? I do. I know I do talk fast. Mm. My top sexy voices. Mm-hmm. See if you agree. Brad yep. Pitt. Yeah. And Sarah Arbo from 60 Minutes. Okay. You Random. probably don't know her. Random. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Alec Baldwin. Oh, yep. Yep, yeah. for sure. Yep. And, of course, the My James. Oh My Barista. Great teeth and a sexy voice. Now, I've spoken about his razzle-dazzle teeth before on this podcast and the person that told him that, please do not embarrass me again. (laughs) You're embarrassing yourself. I'm embarrassing myself. I've got to add to that list James Bader, of course. Of course. Well, we will see you next week. See you next week. If you made it this far, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the podcast. If you could subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps other people find the podcast. Not that I'm desperate or anything. See you next week.